Hello and welcome to the podcast series On Air. We are very excited to embark on this journey and we look forward to exploring the clinical applications of immune cell repertoires. In this series, we would look at how T and B cell receptors are currently used in diagnostics. We will discuss different areas where repertoires can be a great addition and the reasons why we are just not quite there yet. The podcast series is supported by the Antibody Society. Society aims to bring together everyone working with antibodies and you can find out more information about the society on the website antibodysocietyinoneword.org. Welcome to the second episode of On Air, the podcast of the Air community with a special focus on diagnostic use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. Today with us, we have Lindsay Cowell from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Hey, Lindsay. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for coming. Um, the podcast is hosted by Niti Gupta and me, Ulrich Stavbol. Hello, everyone, and welcome. The podcast series is supported by the Antibody Society, which aims to bring together everyone working with antibodies. You can find more information about the society on the website antibodysociety.org. So, Lindsay, your background is in biomathematics after your PhD at North Carolina State University in 2000. You did postdoc training at Department of Immunology at Duke University Medical Center before you started your own research group at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. When I look at your resume, I see an overreaching interest in establishing a framework we can use to understand clinical implications of AirSeq. And here we will discuss the obstacles that you address with your work. But first, I would like to know, of all the exciting problems in immunology, why AIR and why TCR in particular? Well, um, regarding why TCR in particular, I originally started with a focus on B cells, <laughs> which kind of brings us to why air. Um, so as a graduate student, I was very interested in um, rapid adaptation of um, organisms to environmental exposures. So um the evolution of pesticide resistance by insects or um, antibiotic resistance on the part of bacteria. And I originally thought that would be my, you know, long-term area of research. But I studied with um, Tom Kepler. He was my thesis advisor. And I mentioned him because he, of course, is one of the original founders of the AIR community. And he, his focus was computational immunology and in particular somatic diversification of B cell receptor encoding genes. And so I was exposed during my graduate training to this quite fascinating system of um, gene rearrangement and then affinity maturation by B cells. And of course, it's a very beautiful example of that rapid adaptation. Um, so I became fascinated and have been studying that ever since. Um, for a long time, my focus was on the basic 
underlying mechanisms of diversification. So initially, somatic hypermutation. Then as a postdoc um, in the Department of Immunology um, at Duke University under Garnett Kelso, I shifted my focus to BDJ recombination more generally. Um, and then as a faculty member, spent some time focusing on repertoires in the context of infectious disease and autoimmune disease, ultimately became interested in cancer immunology at UT Southwestern. And it was at that point that I began um, thinking more about uh, T-cell receptor repertoires. And that was due to the important role of T-cells in uh, cancer immune surveillance and um, eradication also of established tumors. And what is it that it still fascinates you? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, to me, and again, other biological systems, you know, I'm, I'm naive about other biological systems in the body. So sometimes I speak so highly of the immune system as being just this fascinating dynamical system um, that evolves rapidly in response to all of our exposures over the course of our lifetime, um, can distinguish self from non-self, um, can distinguish damage from health, um, and I think, well, maybe it seems so incredibly amazing and unique to me because I just don't know enough about other systems in the body to appreciate the beauty they also have. <laughs> but I would just say that, you know, um, the immune system, the adaptive immune system in particular, and, and these underlying mechanisms of somatic diversification that enable our body to meet this basic tension between um, the exposures that we have over the course of a lifetime, you know, they're infinite in their potential and entirely unanticipatable. <laughs> That's even a word. Um, we can't anticipate them. So how does the body solve that problem, right? We can't encode a receptor for all the possible exposures that we might have and that our body might need to respond to. We can't encode that in a finite-sized genome. So these elaborate mechanisms of creating, at the same time, this tremendous diversity in a relatively compact genomic space, um, that's a unique problem in biology that organisms had to solve. And so I think the evolution of that system and then how it functions with immunological memory, again, it's the same problem, right? We have limited amount of space. So once we have clonal expansion, we have to have contraction, we have to maintain memory, but at the same time within this finite space of our body. And I just think that's, you know, a unique problem um, that has been solved in a unique way um, in different organisms in different ways, right? But in jawed vertebrates, particularly with VDJ recombination, and then, of course, somatic hypermutation of B cells. Um, so, yeah, I would say that still fascinates me after, you know, 25 years of studying it. 
there's not only still so much that I don't know, but there's so much that the field at large does not know. And I feel that we've barely scratched the surface of understanding repertoires and the information they contain and how they are perturbed in response to all of our exposures. So I think you have a unique position coming from a computational side uh, of things where most people, most biologists come into immunology and they somehow go into either B or T cells and they kind of like stay there. But you have this unique position from the computational point of view that you've experienced both T and B cells. So how is the, is there an overlap computationally between the way of thinking about these two things? Yeah, I think computationally there is quite a bit of overlap. I mean, there are important differences that you highlight. So the absence of somatic hypermutation in um, T-cell receptors um, makes many problems computationally easier to solve, such as identifying the underlying germline um, gene segments that participate in a particular rearrangement or identifying um, T-cell receptors that mark members of the same clone. Um, some of these things are easier in the context of T-cell receptors. Um, but there's also, you know, the difference in the antigen that the two different types of receptors um, interact with. So you mentioned HLA in the context of T-cells versus, you know, the free antigen in the context of B-cells. But still, if you look at the receptors themselves and you look at their structure with framework regions and complementarity determining regions, and um, I'm more familiar in the context of T-cell receptors where crystal structure and, you know, available crystal, crystal structures is still very small in number, so we may learn otherwise in the future. But, you know, we still see quite a bit of contact, antigen-specific contact, being mediated by the complementarity-determining regions. And I expect that is similar in the context of B cells. Um, similarly, you know, the mediators of affinity and avidity and specificity um, or at least to some extent expected to be the same, right, in terms of, um, you know, the biochemical and physical properties of the amino acids, you know, charge, polarity, um, hydrophobicity, um, these things. And then, of course, structure, um, you know, the, the 3D structure of the interaction, which is very important and is an area in which I haven't worked, so I can't comment intelligently on that. But I do expect that there is a lot of similarity there um, to where we can learn, you know, those who focus on B cells and those who focus on T cells applying computational methods, we have a lot to learn from each other in terms of what aspects of the receptors prove um, important for um, determining specificity and how do we encode these things in computational models and um, those kinds of issues. So in keeping in line with your interest in creating a framework for understanding the repertoire, you're also involved in establishing an ontology for infectious diseases. Could you explain maybe first a bit what are ontologies and what are they good for? Yeah, that's a great question. So. One of my early interests as a computational immunologist was in 
encoding information in ways that it can be um, usefully computed with. So for example, computers are quite excellent at computing with numbers. And in the you know years of genomics, we've become quite good also at computing with character strings. But when you get to other ways, other types of information and other representations of information, take natural language or even just basic descriptions of entities in the world, um, we do a poor job computing with those things. And so I became very interested early on in how can we create representations of information that allow computers to compute with this information intelligently. Um, and that comes to ontology. Um, many people, when they use the word ontology, they are basically thinking of a controlled vocabulary or controlled terminology. Um, in computer science, the term ontology originally referred to the specification of entities that a software program can know about and what the relationships are between those entities. Um, in philosophy, ontology was about um, identifying and describing the essential essence of things. And in biomedicine, um, I guess the first widely recognized use of ontology was, of course, the gene ontology. Um, and it created kind of a hybrid of these two things. Um, and that arose the field of formal ontology, which um, was a movement to really push biomedical ontology to describe entities in the world on the basis of their natural essence. So not just the way we define them for a computer program, but to define them in a way that actually captures their true essence in the world, right? Um, but also to encode that information in a way that is rigorous and can be expressed using a formal logic that allows computers to reliably compute with this information. So when I talk about ontology, um, I really believe that we're not talking just about controlled vocabularies, controlled terminologies, sets of terms with natural language descriptions that ensure that humans consistently use the terms, even though that is a very useful thing. Um, what I'm really talking about are information artifacts where some entity in the world, be it a cell, a B cell, a T cell, an immune receptor, um, is formally defined according to Aristotelian definitions, um, where you talk about a genus and a differentia, just like the taxonomic organization for um, organisms. Um, and in addition to that, the relationships in the world that that entity has to other entities in the world is captured using relations that have a formal logical um, encoding so that reliable inference can be drawn over those relations. And so uh, that's how I would define ontology. <laughs> 
So the infectious disease ontology was an attempt to apply, um, or let me say it a different way, not apply, to capture, um, to use this formal system for representing the world, um, to represent entities important in the domain of infectious disease, to represent those entities using this kind of a formal logical encoding. You're probably thinking, why would somebody bother to do such a thing? <laughs> um, our idea was that we could thereby enable computers to easily parse between things that are typically kept separate. So like, for example, across scale. So you can go from a gene to, you know, it's transcript, um, protein, cell, tissue, um, organism, population of organisms. So we know a lot, you know, epidemiologists know a lot of things about populations and molecular biologists know a lot of things about molecules, right? How do we bring all of that information together? More importantly, how do we enable a computer to realize the relationship between the populations of a particular type of organism um, in which particular genes have been observed to be expressed at a higher or lower level or where particular gene duplications or, or deletion events are overrepresented. How do we enable computers to, to make that leap? Um, and similarly, not just that, you know, um, across scale, but across domains. So we have this wealth of basic biological information how do we connect electronic medical record data to this basic biological information? Um, how do we go from basic biology into the clinic? Um, and so the idea with the infectious disease ontology was to create the logical scaffolding that would connect what we know in all these different domains um, with each other. Now, to make such an ontology useful, you have to then annotate a bunch of data with it. <laughs> I left that part out. Um, the work for me was quite theoretical. I was very interested in um, creating this logical framework. Um, we didn't take it as far as we could um, into application whereby you then annotate large quantities of data with the ontology. But you do have the, also developed the VDJ server, uh, which yeah. is an open source resource for managing ASIC data. Have you thought about connecting these two things somehow? So clearly you need to have a lot of data annotated according to the disease ontology. But how would those two things connect and would that make sense to make such a connection? Yes, it would, absolutely. And so, you know, the um, standards working group for the AIR community, you know, developed first the MyAIR standard, which was basically a minimal, minimal information checklist. So when making an AIRSeq data set fair, findable, accessible, um, interoperable, reusable, 
what pieces of information must be provided with that data set in order to make it, you know, fair compliant. Um, the next step is to take the MyAir standard and go through each of the fields there and to specify which of those fields um, should be annotated when a particular data set is annotated according to the MyAir standard, which ontology should be used for which field of the MyAir standard. And that specification is work that's currently now being done. So hopefully there'll be a follow-up publication to the initial MyAir publication, and it'll include that linkage from MyAir to um, biomedical ontologies whose use is recommended. And ideally, the set of ontologies chosen would be ontologies that are interoperable um, with each other. And so in that way, the data in BDJ server, because we, um, as, a, as a repository that is a member of the Air Data Commons, we are committed to ensuring that the data in BDJ server is um, compliant with both the MyAir standard as currently specified, but to future enhancements of it that include um, ontology-based annotations of the data. And so within that context, I definitely see a use for the infectious disease ontology um, for annotating repertoires that may have been derived from an infectious disease um, context. And importantly, the infectious disease ontology was developed using formal logical principles that are adhered to by a large body of ontologies that are part of what's called the Open Biomedical Ontologies Foundry, OBO Foundry. Um, and that means that these ontologies are interoperable. So another ontology that I worked on a lot before the infectious disease ontology was the cell ontology which the Meyer standard currently points to. And so, um, you know, there's a cell ontology, a sequence ontology, a disease ontology, um, an ontology of biomedical investigations. Um, so there are ontologies covering all these different domains of science. And these ontologies are designed specifically such that computers can use them together as a coherent representation of you know, biomedicine at large. Um, and so from that standpoint, I see the infectious disease ontology being relevant, not just for VDJ server, but also the air data commons and other important resources, data resources within the infectious disease space. So just so I understand this, so with a data management system like VDJ server and various ontologies, we could actually create a coherent, large, really large data set spanning different types of, of patients um, linked to a very precise definition of diseases or pathogens or whatnot and use this to extract information about the repertoire specific for these pathogens or diseases. Or Exactly, exactly. And so the idea is with the ontology, just to take an example, you could imagine querying the Air Data Commons 
along with other resources, um, such as the Immune Epitope Database um, and other relevant uh, um, data resources, and pulling back because of using a common underlying set of ontologies that are capable of linking, for example, epitopes and repertoires to human phenotypes, um, we could in that way pull back data that is linked and related to each other on that basis, um, thereby providing a more comprehensive understanding of whatever the relevant disease is. Um, say you wanted to find, you know, people who had been um, exposed to, you know, plasmodium falciparum, for example. Um, and you wanted to link repertoires in the Air Data Commons with plasmodium falciparum epitopes in IEDB with epidemiologic data in, you know, the ClinEpi data um, that might tell you something about um, geographic regions where, you know, um, the humans whose repertoires we sequenced um, had been lived and where those repertoires had been collected. So it's a way of trying to interlink all these different pieces of information that go towards forming a more um, comprehensive view of, of the world. So your work deals with air in context of various states of human health and disease. And like you said, more recently, you have been focusing on tumor infiltrating T-cells. Can you describe the diagnostic and prognostic side of the problem? Um, yeah, so, so generally speaking, um, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes are um, or can be prognostic in the context of cancer. So the earliest evidence to this effect came from imaging studies primarily where people quantified, um, you know, the density of lymphocyte infiltration um, to some extent, the type of lymphocytes that had infiltrated and also their spatial organization. So are, are they excluded to the periphery of a tumor or have they managed to, to migrate into the core of the tumor or are they found along an invasive margin? Sort of what's their spatial organization? And, and this was found to be prognostic. Now in the, uh, the time of air, it's become much more common to um, do repertoire sequencing on these um, tumors and people have looked to see whether other properties um, are prognostic, such as diversity or clonality, or whether even the presence of particular um, receptors is prognostic. Uh, for example, um, it has been observed that um, in patients whose pre-treatment tumor repertoire, um, post-treatment who respond well to treatment, um, you often find the expansion of clones that were already present in the tumor before treatment, suggesting that patients who have a pre-existing specificity um, lymphocyte population with specificity for a relevant antigen, um, that those patients are expected to have a, a better outcome. Um, it's currently, I would say, we're in the very earliest stages of understanding um, 
there's a lot of variability from cancer type to cancer type. Um, there's also a lot we don't know about what happens over the course of disease. So there's some evidence that diversity of the repertoire decreases as the disease becomes more advanced. So in these cross-sectional studies where patients may have more diversity, they may respond better to treatment, how do you disentangle that from the fact that, well, maybe that patient was just somewhat earlier in their disease course, and that's what that level of T-cell receptor diversity in the tumor is telling you. So I think that there's so much that we don't yet know, um, but we're in the process of establishing the basic understanding of the time dynamics and the space dynamics. There's a lot of spatial heterogeneity, particularly for certain cancer types like kidney cancer. So if you sample within one region of the tumor, it may tell you something very different than if you had sampled a different region of the tumor. So these time dynamics, space dynamics, what happens across different types of cancer, um, for which cancers is minimally invasively collected tissue available. You know, one area of interest for me is cervical cancer. And part of that is because you do have access to um, collect actual tumor tissue um, through minimally invasive means. Um, it's currently unclear the extent to which the peripheral blood repertoire um, really gives you an accurate representation of what's happening with the immune response in the cancer. Um, so I think these are all open questions that still have to be answered um, in order to move the, the field forward in terms of the clinical use um, of repertoire sequencing in the context of cancer. Are there any clinical studies going on to study the role of these T cells in these cancers? Um, yes. And so it's quite common now to conduct repertoire sequencing within the context of clinical trials that are already ongoing, um, where patients are receiving, you know, experimental therapies. Um, so that that is being widely done now. Um, there are also studies looking at um, adoptive cell therapy where you can take T cells from a patient and, you know, culture them ex vivo, expand them ex vivo, um, give them back um, on the basis of, you know, what T cell receptors. Um, also, there are some studies with engineered T-cell receptors um, where you may attempt to engineer specificity. Um, so similar to CAR T-cells, but rather than having, you know, in CAR T-cells, the chimeric antigen receptor, um, the antigen binding domain typically derives from um, B-cell receptor and the intracellular signaling domain derives from T-cell receptor um, for, for CAR, for chimeric antigen receptors. For engineered T-cell receptors, that also that antigen binding domain would derive from T-cell receptor. Um, so these things are all, you know, happening, um, but again, they're in very early, very experimental um, stages. So how would you go about optimizing a T-cell receptor for a tumor? 
Yeah, I mean, so part of it is the receptor itself and um, identifying what. So, first critical thing is the tumor antigen. And you need an antigen that is specific to the tumor in order to avoid um, the T cells attacking healthy tissues in the body. So, that can be the first challenge is, first of all, knowing what antigen can we target. Um, neoantigens are, um, a common choice because the likelihood that it's expressed outside the tumor is very small. Unfortunately, though, that typically results in needing a different therapy for every individual patient. Um, so, so balancing between, um, tumor antigens that may be shared across patients, um, with that risk that, are you going to potentially have expression of that antigen outside the tumor? So that's an important choice. But then knowing what T cell receptors are targeting what antigens um, and identifying the right T cell receptor to use for that kind of cellular, cellular therapy. Um, but then you get really into the synthetic biology of programming the cell um, because it's not just about the specificity you need the cell to migrate to the tumor, to stay in the tumor, to not become exhausted um, and, and susceptible to um, suppression by T regulatory cells um, and other things. So it's, uh, as you can imagine, extremely complicated. Um, and that synthetic biology component is something that I haven't been involved in, so I can't speak very intelligently about it. I like to think about the repertoire and the T cell receptor and then pass it on to the next expert <laughs> in the pipeline. Um, but yeah, engineering these cells also with different combinations of um, co-signals um, to, you know, better ensure that they have a, an appropriate response after they're introduced into the body. All of that is, you know, we've got a long road to, to really sort all of that. It's quite easier, though, in certain contexts. I should mention uh, cancers of viral etiology. Um, so I mentioned cervical cancer as an area of interest for my research group and cervical cancer, um, has HPV, human papillomavirus etiology, um, as do some other cancers like oropharyngeal cancer. Um, and so in this context, often, um, you can more easily design, uh, T cell therapies with T cells that have specificity for certain HPV antigens. And you avoid a lot of that other complexity that I described um, when looking at cancers that don't have viral etiology. So then moving away from, from tumors and, and cancers and into a more bird's eye perspective on air and air sick, what do you think the, is the future of, of air in a clinical setting? Where can you see the next big progress being made? Um, the next big progress being made, I think that diagnostics in the context of infectious disease is likely to be, um, diagnostics and prognostics in the context of infectious disease is likely to be, um, 
an area where we see some advances sooner. And I think we saw a lot of that in the context of COVID-19, like, for example, with adaptive T-cell tests, you know, and, and understanding that looking at looking for antibodies is not sufficient in the context of some infectious diseases. We need to look for T-cell responses. Um, I think in the context of cancer, um, you know, looking at um, matching patients to therapy is likely to be a very fruitful area. Um, so, for example, identifying patients who may respond well to checkpoint blockade. Um, you could imagine that that response depends to a large extent on the repertoire available for the response, um, but also, you know, the extent to which those, those cells are exhausted. Um, so I think those are likely to be areas that, that come down the pike sooner. Also, I think diagnostics in the context of autoimmune disease, um, where we've seen a lot of work, for example, in multiple sclerosis. Um, and so I think those are sooner than others, um, like diagnosing cancer, for example, which is an area of interest for my group. Um, but I think that, I think repertoires are going to be very powerful in the clinic, but I think that we have a lot of barriers to overcome first. And, you know, I think we really need to demonstrate a utility for clinical decision-making. And that I think we found a lot of really interesting associations and a lot of really interesting correlations with phenotypes. But have we really demonstrated that the information we're currently deriving from repertoires um, is the piece of information that a clinician needs to take path A versus path B for a particular patient? And I think to get to that point, um, we need much more standardized and rigorous experimental protocols, which, you know, the Air Community Biological Resources Group is doing really beautiful work in that space that I think is going to advance the field, you know, tremendously. Um, I think on the, on the side of methods, we also need similar standardization of analysis protocols that, that enables in both experiment and analysis, we need more transparency, more reproducibility, um, larger sample sizes, um, more um, accommodation of heterogeneous populations within studies, all of these things. That's to some extent standard. Um, but where what might be more unique, I think, in the context of repertoires is where um, the machine learning aspect comes in. So there's a lot of machine learning for clinical diagnostics, but often what you see is that um, algorithms are being trained to do things that humans do, like to replace pathologist review of histological images. In the context of repertoires, Repertoires are so complex and there's so much that we don't know. And, and as a human, you know, when a pathologist looks at an image, they can describe what they see. Oh, I see this cell type, that cell type here. They're over here. They're over there. How many? When we look at repertoires, you know, as a human, we don't, there's very little of the information there that we are actually able to parse out and then tell a machine to go look for, right? So we're much more in the realm of let's just send the machine over and have it 
dig around and see what it can find as a, you know, predictive signal signal for which it gets high accuracy, but you've lost interpretability. And I think that that, I think we need to bridge that divide to really advance um, the use of repertoire diagnostics in the clinic. I mean, there's some more straightforward cases like minimal residual disease, for example, where if a patient has a hematologic malignancy and expresses a particular receptor and you know what that clone is, and you can then always go in and monitor for, for presence of that clone. But in other contexts, um, I think we really have to bridge this huge gap between um, the interpretability of the machine learning algorithms and what they're actually finding um, before, you know, we'll really be to the point of having clinically applicable <laughs> diagnostics on a broader scale. This brings to the end of the second episode of On Air, the podcast of the AIR community with special focus on clinical use of adaptive immune receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. If you have any comments and questions, please drop us a line or tweet using hashtag OnAir with two R's. Thank you, Lindsay, for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. I did too. And I'm sure Nidhi did also. I did. <laughs> it's very good. That's lovely. Um, the next episode will be available in just about one month's time when we will discuss TCRs and COVID with Philip Bradley from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And this podcast is edited by Abdul Aziz of the comedy podcast Sprout Law. Thank you for listening to On Air.